0: Hi, this is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm the editor of the journal Radiology. This is part one of our September 2019 podcast. The goal of these podcasts is to present a brief summary of key research in our field to keep you up to date. It's been a bit more than a year with our new podcast format. I want to thank about 12,000 listeners a month from around the world. A key for our journal Radiology has been to maintain quality and relevance, but also we want to make the best of the best research understandable. Fancy statistics are nice, but not helpful if we have statistical gobbledygook. We ask authors to summarize their key results in a breakout box. The authors can sometimes work up to several years on their research paper, but remarkably, it's still difficult even for the authors themselves to tell us what really matters. As you know, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. By the time you listen to this podcast, it will be September, so summer's over. That means getting back to work, being productive, helping patients, learning, and teaching. So today, lots of key results from September. And if you want CME review articles, our September state-of-the-art reviews are on breast MRI and also MRI safety at 7T. Now, let's get to work. Six research articles from the September issue. Cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. Radiology participation in cardiovascular disease diagnosis is actually increasing. Ten years ago, radiology offered just cardiac MRI. Not many radiologists were interested in that challenging area. Now cardiac CT angiography has changed the entire approach. Beginning about two years ago, more radiologists are interpreting cardiac CT than cardiologists. A few things you need to know are in this next article. The title is, Determinants of Rejection Rate for Coronary CT Angiography Fractional Flow Reserve Analysis. The first author is Dr. Pantone from Milan, Italy. The senior author is Dr. Jonathan Leipzig from Vancouver. Background. Here, even the title does not make much sense unless you are a bit in the know. The background. If you diagnose 50% or more narrowing on coronary CT, you expect the patient will go to the cath lab because they need a coronary stent. And although you are very, very good at finding 50% narrowing, the sensitivity is actually more than 90%, you are still wrong 50% of the time that the patient needs a stent. That means you have a positive test, but it's only a 50-50 chance that a stent is really needed. That number is called the positive predictive value. How many radiologists want to be wrong about sending a patient to the cath lab 50% of the time? Seems embarrassing almost, but that's the number. It does not matter if you're the best or the worst your anatomy does not match up with the cath lab in determining whether treatment is needed. So the somewhat remarkable test that you now have available is called CT Fractional Flow Reserve, or CTFFR. You pay a company about $1,500. They do a software analysis of the CT, and they give you a number that ranges from 0 to 1. If the number is 0.80 or less, the narrowing of the artery is sufficient that the patient should go to the cath lab for further evaluation and a stent. I'll explain a bit more of that in a minute. The problem is, even though you want to pay the company called HeartFlow all of this money to analyze your CT, in the past, about 30% of the time, they rejected your CT scan. They said the quality was not good enough. Their fancy analysis and advanced computations would not work. Very disappointing. Very disappointing. So that's how we come to the title of this article, Determinants of the Rejection Rate for Coronary CT Angiography Fractional Flow Reserve. The authors wanted to determine why your CTs are being rejected. Before I get to the main results, just a bit more background. Number one, the sensitivity of coronary CT to detect coronary narrowing is very high, about 90%. Number two, the specificity is also very high, greater than 95%. Number three, The positive predictive value is low, 50%, toss of a coin. Positive predictive value is the chance that when you say the test is positive, that it really turns out to be positive. Number four, invasive cardiology is no longer supposed to treat coronary narrowing alone. They're supposed to treat only areas of narrowed arteries that cause abnormalities in flow. This is measured by looking at a coronary pressure before and after the narrowed segment. If the pressure before the narrowed segment is 100 millimeters of mercury, and after that, it's 60, the ratio is 60 over 100, or 0.6. That's a big drop in blood pressure. In general, angioplasty and stent is done when the ratio is 0.8 or less. Otherwise, the patient just receives medical therapy, mostly statins. No benefit from angioplasty. Number five, after you perform the coronary CT, Equations can be used to estimate the pressure drop across the narrowed artery. The equations account for the curvature of the arteries, the length of the arteries, the degree of narrowing. The equations for this have been around for 100 years. The same flow equations are used to make sure that you have enough water pressure on the second floor of your house or on the 50th floor of a New York high-rise apartment. Hemodynamic equations are used to estimate the pressure drop and to compute a CT fractional flow reserve. Purpose. Determine the rejection rate for being able to calculate the CT coronary fractional flow reserve. Just a few years ago, about 30% of CT cases had such low quality that they could not be processed for CT FFR. Methods. Two large databases were accessed by the authors. One is a large ongoing registry for coronary CT called the Advance Registry. In addition, the records were accessed from a commercial company that provides CT FFR calculations. The company is HeartFlow. Before HeartFlow technicians calculate the FFR value, they do a quality check. If you send them a bad quality case, they reject the CT. No calculation is performed. Results. In the advanced registry of about 3,000 patients, the rejection rate was only 3% due to poor quality CT. From the HeartFlow database of routine clinical coronary CT, of 10,000 cases, 8% were rejected. Conclusion. These results are important to us on a daily basis. Before this result, we were concerned that up to one-third of coronary CT studies could not be processed to give us a critical diagnosis, significant coronary artery narrowing. Very embarrassing for clinicians. But now, rejected CT scans are infrequent. The reason? Better CT scanners. Older CT scanners had thicker slices and were slower, resulting in motion artifacts. Now, instead of only 64-slice CT, the bare minimum for coronary CT, there are more 128, 256, and 320-slice scanners. All of this is good news for radiologists doing coronary CT. It's also good news for many patients to get much more reliable results. The next article is work from Johns Hopkins. The title is, Follow-up of Incidentally Detected Pancreatic Cystic Neoplasms do baseline MRI and CT features predict cyst growth? The first author is Dr. Palavi Pandey, the senior author, Dr. Ihab Kamel. Background. On CT, incidental pancreatic cystic lesions are detected in about 2% of patients. On MRI, these are much more common, up to 20% of cases showing pancreatic cysts. What's the management? What are you supposed to do? The basic diagnosis is straightforward potentially a pseudocyst from pancreatitis or cystic neoplasm. The most common neoplasms are intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasm, or IPMN, serous cystic neoplasm, and mucinous cystic neoplasm. I have an app on my phone that advises on current recommendations for follow-up. For a cyst less than 15 millimeters, image once a year for five years. If stable, image every other year, stopping after nine years. A lot of follow-up, at least 7 MRIs for a cyst as small as 5 to 15 millimeters. That's the American College of Radiology recommendation. If the cyst increases in size or is larger, management may involve endoscopy and fine needle aspiration. Most current recommendations are based on expert opinions, not on data. We don't really have data on how fast these cysts might grow. Purpose. Determine the growth rate of incidentally detected pancreatic cystic neoplasms, the authors wanted to see if the 2017 ACR guidelines make sense. Methods. This is a single center retrospective study conducted on the basis of more than 15 years of experience. The authors included patients if they had follow-up CT and MRI more than 12 months apart, they determined the growth rates of cysts as a function of cyst size. Results. The authors included 646 cysts in 390 patients. The patients were followed for an average of four years. Of all of these patients, 21, or only about 5%, ended up having surgery for the cyst. Hopkins is an aggressive surgery site. That 5% number gives you an idea that the need for surgery is not very frequent. The definitions of cyst growth used by the ACR depend on size. Start by measuring the longest axis on axial or coronal images. The rules are if less than five millimeters, we define growth when the cyst doubles in size. If five to 14 millimeters, 50% increase in long axis diameters used. If 15 millimeters or more, then growth is defined as a 20% increase. Using these definitions, the Hopkins group found that 30% of cysts increased in size, 10% decreased, and 60% stayed the same. But larger cysts tended to grow more If the cyst was larger than 15 millimeters, about 40% of cysts grew over 5 years. Overall, growth was very slow. For example, none of the cysts 5 millimeters or less showed any growth over 3 years. Any other features that predicted rapid cyst growth? No. Not gender, not the presence of a septation, not multiple cysts, not cyst location, or not even the presence of a mural nodule predicted cyst growth. Only that a big cyst tended to get bigger. Conclusions. Number one, for small cysts less than five millimeters, Dr. Kamel and his co-authors found no growth until at least three years of follow-up. They suggest just following up at three years rather than yearly. Eventually, 13% of cysts double their diameter after five years. Number two, if the cyst is larger than 15 millimeters, approximately 40% showed growth over five years. Compared to five millimeter or smaller cysts, 15 millimeter or larger cysts are about two to three times more likely to show growth. Number three, when do we get worried about cyst growth? The answer is 30 millimeters. This is when we get quite concerned about a greater risk of malignancy. Number four, finally, what is the overall risk from these pancreatic cystic lesions? About 5%. About 5% of patients eventually were diagnosed with a more concerning cystic neoplasm, most commonly an introductal pancreatic mucinous neoplasm, abbreviated as IPMN. Next article, another new result also about pancreatic cancer. The short title is Perfusion CT to Assess Response to Chemotherapy and Radiation Therapy in Pancreatic Adenocarcinoma. The authors are from MIA University Hospital in Japan. The first author, Dr. Ahmed Hamdi. The senior author is Dr. Hajima Sakuma. Dr. Sakuma is well-known internationally for his work in cardiovascular imaging. In this paper, he applies his talents to a related topic of looking at perfusion in pancreatic tumors. Background. Pancreatic cancer remains a really bad tumor, fourth leading cause of cancer in the United States. More than 50,000 pancreatic cancers per year, 80% die from their cancer. When I was in training 25 years ago, the five-year survival was 5%. 25 years later, it's almost the same. Five-year survival is 9%. Surgery has always been the initial approach. Dr. John Cameron in Baltimore perfected the Whipple procedure for treatment. The Whipple procedure was the pinnacle of scary surgery for both the patient and the surgeon. Resection of the pancreatic head and adjacent duodenum. That leaves the bile duct with nowhere to drain. So a loop of jejunum is brought up to the liver hilum, the hepaticojejunostomy then do radiation therapy and chemotherapy. Afterwards, the anatomy is a mess. Multiple surgical anastomoses prone to leaks. I once heard the venerable Dr. Stanley Siegelman say that after the Whipple surgery, these were the most complex cases he had seen in the abdomen. And Dr. Cameron kept getting more and more aggressive with his surgeries. Why not? Surgery was the only chance at prolonging life. So even if the portal vein or superior mesenteric vein was invaded, he would resect those two and patch them back up. This pattern might sound familiar. Like Blalock and breast cancer surgery, keep resecting more and more, more radical surgery. But the biology of the tumor eventually wins. Now, pancreatic cancer is taking also a page from breast cancer treatment. Use chemotherapy and radiation before surgery, not after. Termed neoadjuvant therapy. This can shrink the tumor and allow resection of the entire tumor. Unfortunately, CT of pancreatic cancer after neoadjuvant therapy does a poor job. There's poor agreement between CT and tumor response. Why? Pancreatic adenocarcinoma is unique. The tumor produces a desmoplastic reaction, fibrous tissue, and that fibrous tissue is similar to the fibrous scarring that also occurs due to neoadjuvant radiation and chemotherapy. Purpose. Determine if perfusion CT results correspond to tumor response after chemo and radiation therapy of pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Methods. 62 patients, prospective study. Patients had perfusion CT before and after chemo and radiation therapy. The CT scans were about seven weeks apart. If the cancer team felt there was a response to therapy, then the patient underwent surgical resection. How do you perform a perfusion CT? CT scans were acquired every 1.5 seconds, total of 40 phases. The perfusion scanning started immediately after the start of the iodine injection. Results. My first question, what is the radiation dose from perfusion CT? The dose was 13 millisieverts, not as high as I had expected. Although this doubles the dose for conventional abdomen CT, these patients had a deadly cancer. The one-year survival rate is only 20%. They just went through radiation therapy about 200 times the radiation dose as from the CT. Only 21 patients made it through the neoadjuvant therapy and eventually had surgery. This attests to the poor prognosis in these patients. Of these patients, about half were responders, half non-responders at pathology and surgery. The main question, was the perfusion CT able to distinguish between responders and non-responders? Answer. Patients who had a response to therapy had greater tumor perfusion at baseline, about 30% higher than patients with poor treatment response, and none of the other conventional parameters showed a difference between the groups. Resist size parameters, ca nineteen nine, or tumor size did not detect a difference between responders and non-responders. Interesting as well, after radiation and chemotherapy, all of the patients showed greater tumor perfusion. Perfusion goes up after treatment. Conclusions. Pancreatic cancer, and by that I mean pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, continues to frustrate oncologists and kill patients much the same as 25 years ago. The new approach, neoadjuvant therapy prior to surgery. What did we learn here? CT shows that patients who responded to neoadjuvant therapy had greater tumor perfusion at baseline. Why? Better perfusion means better delivery of the anti-cancer drug. And after completion of the neoadjuvant therapy, all of the patients show better perfusion. It seems the anti-cancer therapy had some positive benefit for slowing the tumor's process of creating a resistant fibrous stroma. Finally, larger tumors had worse perfusion. The large tumor mass inhibits perfusion. Baseline tumor size, ca nineteen nine, and resist parameters were unable to predict successful response to chemo and radiation therapy. Overall, I think this is the first new result I've seen for 10 or 15 years on pancreatic cancer with CT. If you are a neuroradiologist, pancreatic cancer is the equivalent of a GBM, a really bad tumor. I very much like the prospective, well-thought-out study design from these authors. This is new knowledge that parallels the new types of therapy being used for treatment of pancreatic cancers. Next article. A statement about problems for our interventional radiologists. The title is Impact of Respiratory Compromise in Inpatient Interventional Radiology Procedures with Moderate Sedation in the United States. The first author is Dr. Richard Ehrman. The senior author is Dr. Charles Ray. The study is from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Background. Procedures performed with some form of sedation are done in the operating room or in various clinics, such as interventional radiology. Adverse events due to anesthesia occur twice as often when the anesthesia is used outside of the operating room. Complications in interventional radiology due to sedation occur in up to 5% of cases. Purpose: Determine factors associated with complications from moderate sedation during interventional radiology procedures. Methods: The authors were able to access a large database that include 853 hospitals in the United States. This database included about one out of every six patients discharged from a U.S. hospital over three years between 2012 and 2015. The authors looked for complications due to respiratory compromise during IR procedures. The IR procedures were performed with moderate sedation, including inhaled or IV anesthetics or barbiturates. Results. Over 500,000 IR procedures were included. Number one. Respiratory compromise was present in 1% of IR procedures. The factors most likely to be associated with respiratory compromise were long-term opioid therapy or substance abuse, age 65 or older, and sleep apnea. Number two, for patients who developed respiratory compromise with an IR procedure and moderate sedation, every indicator of complication was greater, longer hospital stay, ICU admission, and cost. Conclusion, Respiratory compromise may lead to respiratory insufficiency, failure, or death. In the IR lab, these are minimally invasive procedures done with moderate sedation. About 1% of procedures are complicated by patient respiratory compromise. The rate of complication was the same for simpler versus more complex procedures. If respiratory compromise occurred, the rate of death during hospitalization was nine times higher. Now, our society is trying to deal with the burden of opioid addiction, There were 70,000 deaths from opioid overdose in 2017 in the United States. We just discussed pancreatic cancer, 40,000 deaths from that cancer per year. The concern, are physicians aware of the opioid addiction prior to an IR procedure? In March of 2018, Dr. Prince and colleagues at Cornell reported a meta-analysis of allergic reactions to gadolinium contrast. They evaluated nine previously published studies, over 700,000 gadolinium injections. Our next article is from the Mayo Clinic, a single institution study of more than 280,000 documented injections of gadolinium. The short title is Acute Adverse Events Following Gadolinium Contrast Agent Administration. The first author is Dr. Jennifer McDonald, the senior author Dr. Robert McDonald. The Mayo team is highly experienced in the evaluation of gadolinium reactions and also contributed a great deal to our understanding of brain deposition of gadolinium. Background. Prince and colleagues had several conclusions from their 2018 article. Number one, lower reaction rates were seen with non-ionic compared to ionic gadolinium agents. Number two, the overall reaction rates were the lowest for the non-ionic linear contrast agents. That's not ideal because those same linear agents have more reports of both nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, or NSF, and brain deposition of gadolinium. In general, the newer macrocyclic agents had a higher rate of allergic reactions compared to the linear agents. Number three, finally, the overall rate of severe allergic reactions was one in 20,000. The rate of death was low, three of one million injections. The reasons to do a meta-analysis, Big data, large numbers from combining multiple studies. The disadvantages of meta-analysis, unlikely that different authors use the same exact methods, same exact definitions for severity and reporting of a gadolinium reaction. For this large, single-center study from Mayo Clinic, we expect to have more consistent data and analysis. Purpose, compare reaction rates of different gadolinium agents over an eight-year period. Methods. I'm going to use trade names. I think it's a bit easier than the chemical names. When we think of gad agents, a simple way to start is linear versus macrocyclic agents. We think of macrocyclic agents as having a tighter hold on the gadolinium atom. This means lower dissociation of free gadolinium. For both macrocyclic and linear structures, the gad agent can be either ionic or non-ionic. At Mayo, two macrocyclic agents were used, Gadovist and doterem, DOTAREM is ionic, the newer GATAVIST is non-ionic. Mayo also used two linear agents, OmniScan and Maltahance. OmniScan is non-ionic, Maltahance is ionic. Remember the trend is to use gadolinium agents that are macrocyclic, such as Gadavist and DOTAREM. Of the GAD agents used by Mayo, only OmniScan is a so-called class 1 agent as determined by the American College of Radiology. The class I agents have a greater association with nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Results. The authors separated their reactions into allergic, such as hives or wheezing, versus physiologic reactions. They identified physiologic reactions, such as nausea and vomiting, as well as vasovagal reactions. For allergic reactions, there were 16 per 10,000 injections. Multihance, a linear ionic agent, and Gadavist, macrocyclic non-ionic, had a higher reaction rate than OmniScan and DotaREM. For the severe reactions, these also occurred only with Gatavist and Multihance. The severe reactions required hospitalization. There were no deaths. For physiologic reactions, the rate was 13 out of 10,000 overall. Again, these were higher with Multihance and Gatavist compared to OmniScan and DotaREM. Other risk factors for allergic reactions. Women had twice as many allergic reactions as men, Younger patients, ages 20 to 50, had higher rates of reaction than older patients. Oddly, allergic reactions were about 40% more common with MRI of the abdomen compared to MRI of the brain. This has been reported previously. The reasons are not clear. For physiologic reactions, again, women were about twice as likely compared to men. Conclusions. Number one, overall allergic reactions, 16 per 10,000, severe reactions, quite uncommon, two per 100,000. Last year, Dr. Prince reported five per 100,000. Number two, this study also reports that ionic agents have more reactions than non-ionic agents and that macrocyclic agents are associated with more reactions than linear agents. Number three, the pattern of allergic reactions was quite similar to that of physiologic reactions such as nausea and vomiting vasovagal reactions. Number four, Although their reactions were uncommon, they occurred in women twice as frequently as men. Older patients had fewer reactions than younger patients. Finally, a quick reminder about the American College of Radiology classification of acute reactions. Reactions to contrast agents are either mild, moderate, or severe. Mild reactions are self-limited, may include hives, itchiness, scratchy throat, sneezing, and so on. Moderate reactions usually require medical treatment such as Benadryl administration. Symptoms include diffuse hives, facial edema, throat tightness, or hoarseness. Severe reactions are potentially life-threatening. Patients have dyspnea, laryngeal edema, hypotension, wheezing, or anaphylactic shock. This is another nice comprehensive summary of well-documented experiences from the Mayo Clinic. Final topic, migraine headache and MRI. The title is Altered Vascular Permeability in Migraine-Associated Brain Regions Evaluation with Dynamic Contrast Enhanced MRI. The first author, Dr. Yoon Suk Kim from the Seoul National University in Korea. This article has an excellent editorial that helps us interpret the research. The authors are Dr. Timothy Carroll and Daniel Thomas Gannat from the University of Chicago. I'm going to summarize the key statements and read portions from their editorial. Background. Migraine and other severe headaches are common and a major public health problem, especially among reproductive age women. Migraine is an episodic, multifactorial, neurovascular disorder, which is a diagnosis of exclusion. MRI is used in cases of suspected migraine to rule out more serious conditions, such as tumors, aneurysm infections, and hydrocephalus. There are no known imaging biomarkers specific to migraine despite the development of high field strength scanners and advanced physiologic imaging, that is, perfusion, diffusion, functional MRI. There are prior reports that migraine is associated with inflammation-induced structural change in the blood-brain barrier. Purpose. Evaluate the relationship between permeability of the blood-brain barrier with dynamic contrast enhanced MRI and migraine. I will abbreviate this as DCE MRI. Methods: DCE MRI uses rapid T1-weighted MRI to look at signal change after bolus administration of gadolinium. If there is leakage of the blood-brain barrier, then two parameters might be affected. Number one, the transfer rate of gadolinium from the capillary to the extracellular fluid between the cells. Number two. The amount of plasma in the capillaries themselves could decrease. This parameter is called the fractional plasma volume. This was a prospective study with 35 migraine patients and 21 healthy controls. Results: Those with migraines tend to have lower fractional plasma volume in the left amygdala. The blood-brain barrier shows greater permeability. The fractional plasma volume was 25% lower in patients with migraine versus controls presumably due to leakage of fluid. Conclusions. The findings of Kim and colleagues are consistent with prior studies that implicated abnormal functional connectivity and gray matter volume of the amygdala in the pathogenesis of migraines. This work provides what appears to be the first observation of a potential biomarker for migraine. Will we start doing MRI for migraine? Not quite yet. There are many research groups evaluating headache. This is from a very advanced neuroimaging group in Korea but the results need to be reproduced by other studies. It would be very interesting to know, if the migraine is treated, does the MRI go back to normal? Lots of questions to be answered as we look towards other research in the area. Otherwise, this study is potentially the first MRI marker that could be routinely used to evaluate abnormalities in migraine headache. That concludes this week's articles. Summer ending. September, back to hard work in the clinic. Today, you made it through six new research topics. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.